you're listening to Who Run the World, a podcast about female leadership in the workplace. I'm Rhea. I'm the producer. You don't typically hear my voice on the show, but today I decided to steal the microphone from Marilyn, and I actually turned the tables on her and interviewed her so that you guys get to hear her full story. In a lot of episodes, you probably have heard some anecdotes, some jokes, a few stories from Marilyn's life and from her time at work. So we decided that it was time for you to hear the entirety of her story. Now, maybe the entirety is a big word. You actually are going to hear from when she was born all the way until the last day of her first job where we used to work together and that's actually where we met so you'll get to hear about where she grew up her first days at her job how she became a leader how she became a manager some of the difficulties she's encountered along the way and you'll get to hear about her last day at work where spoiler alert we actually botched a surprise farewell lunch it's a very special conversation we actually were in beirut when we recorded this in maryland's childhood home so it was a very special conversation i really hope you guys will enjoy it without further ado here is maryland's story and uh, happy listening I'm holding a mic. It's like a mix between holding a hairbrush when I was 10 and singing in front of my mirror and karaoke, which you know how that's going to end. I'm going to sing. Not today. Please. Not today. Let us do what we've come here to do. And the two examples that you gave, one was instead of a microphone and the other is a microphone. So it is exactly like <laughs> holding a hairbrush and karaoke because it's exactly the same. Exactly. So we're going to flip the mic today. Are you excited? I'm not. I'm usually the person who's bossing everyone around and asking them questions. But I get to boss you around. All right. I'm going to let you do this because you've been a nice producer. Well, basically what I want us to do today is for you to tell our listeners a bit about your own story. Because we've heard you in other episodes talking to a bunch of different people, alluding to some things, but never really sharing what... You went through. Yeah. Well, I guess it's only fair if I ask all these other women to be in front of everybody and tell their story honestly that I should do the same. So let's start like we always start. Where did you grow up? So I grew up between Lebanon and Canada. I was born in a town just off of Beirut called Babda. Then when I was about two years old, it was the middle of civil war. So I was born in 1986 and the civil war in Lebanon ended in 1990. My mother shipped us off to Canada. When I say us, I mean my older brother and I. And your older brother is older by six years. Lots of bullying stories there on both sides, might I add. So she shipped us off with my grandmother and one of my uncles. And we stayed there for two to three years. Went to school there, I think, for a year. And then came back here when I was about four or five. Went to school here. And then when I was 15, my mom decided it was time to leave Lebanon again. But when we got to Canada, I started dating a 23-year-old. My mom panicked. Oh. And <laughs> yeah, I know. And six months later, she shipped me back to Lebanon. Do you remember that move? It was hard. I mean, when you're 15 is when you have like all of your closest best friends. You're in the safety of like your school, your habits, the things that you know. And then suddenly it's like, oh, hey, we're going to move you halfway around the globe. Seven hour time difference. That's a lot of changes. That's a couple of changes of schools. Yes, I went to like four different schools. Because you said you were there at 15 and then you came back. Right. So when I came back, I went to my old school for the remaining six months of the year. And then I 
made my mother change schools for me again. I changed schools like four times as well. Different countries because of my dad's job. And we talked about how each kid deals with change in different ways. I have friends who are parents and they're always worried about creating change in their life. I always tell them that for me at least, the fact that I had so much change when I was young made me such a robust person as a grown-up. Maybe that was different 50 years ago, but how I feel about the world today is that any kind of security or stability is an illusion of security or stability. Whether it's at work, whether it's in your personal life, everything is in constant flux. And obviously the cliche is it's going faster and faster. And so in my opinion, if you learn to deal with change when you're young, of course, this is me post-rationalizing a very difficult childhood, but I got out of it alive and I got out of it stronger and I got out of it finding it so much easier than the people around me to deal with change and change is going to happen and so I really believe that learning to deal with that when you're young learning what it means to lose something what part of it you can keep and then what it means to accept something new as your new reality is so important yeah even had to learn how to move on learn how to process loss like I have so many friends that didn't go through anything like that when they were kids or teenagers and then by the time they were 20 some stupid thing would happen to them and the world would collapse and I'd be like oh what's wrong with you guys like this doesn't seem like such a big but deal. he broke up with me exactly and, my, and in my case it's like oh cool whole new world I'm making it sound stupid but honestly I really think that learning to adapt to change at a young age has been one of the best things that has happened to me and also if something's thrown at you you know how to duck Dodge, or catch yeah. it. Totally. And also, I think that it has made me build a reflex. Like, I remember a friend of mine once saying this to me, and I didn't really realize it until they did. And they were saying, you are one of the most adaptive people I know. Because one of the sort of, let's say, defense mechanism that you build when you have to deal with so much change is that you accept change or loss as long as there is something to be learned. And so it makes you an incredibly self introspective person self-aware person that can measure their own temperature and can say okay I realize that there is no way I can keep this it's gone someone took it I lost it whatever but is there something I can learn so that I carry it with me somehow and so it makes you someone who's really good at learning also so just to like recap a bit so this whole time it was you your brother who's six years older and my mom tell me a bit about your mom I mean I know your mom but Tell our listeners a bit about your mom. Okay, so my mom is actually a really amazing character. So she grew up in a family of nine. And her dad was also like, I mean, at least how she presents him to me is like he was some like very specific legendary character. I don't think he went to university. He could read and write and do math. But I don't think he went to university. And he was a builder. So every Sunday morning, he would go to town buy breakfast items and in their context breakfast items was like raw meat and uh, arak and wake the kids up at 6 30 sit them down feed them and then spend the rest of the day throwing like riddles at them they all developed this kind of very like logical thinking and so my mother went to university this was in the like late 70s early 80s and she studied software engineering i think her whole class had like six girls out of 400 people even then i mean it was a pretty cutting edge thing to study when she was studying computers were rooms not portable devices they were literally rooms and then she got divorced when i was four so i've always grown up with a really strong female role model who climbed social ladder by sort of going to university, working really hard. You know, she was the assistant general manager of a bank at some point in her career. She was extremely hardworking. 
certainly because she had to feed us. But in my mind, I didn't see it that way. I didn't know what money was. Uh, I just saw a woman that, you know, got up early, went to work, became a manager when she was really young, ran teams of both male and female employees, but ran them like, you know, super well. So yeah, I had a full of life, but also extremely hardworking, very independent mom. So yeah, my mom has been like a major element of who I've become. Did your mom ever talk to you about you need to work extra hard because you're a girl? I think my mother bullied both me and my brother in being excellent. However, even as an adult, I still have issues accepting compliments because when I was a kid and someone would say oh she's so pretty later on that day or the next day my mom would be like remember how like aunt whatever Soha just told you that you look really cute well you didn't do anything to deserve that you were just born this way and so if you want to deserve compliments in the future you should work hard you should show that your brain is worth something because that is what you have control over. Beauty was just the you know incidental thing that we were talking about, but it could have been that I got an offer or an opportunity. Like what she was trying to teach me, I think, conceptually, is some people succeed because they're lucky. Some people succeed because they work hard. And hopefully you'll have a combination of both. But don't forget that two out of three of those stories require hard work. I mean, listen, we're all dealt a hand if you want to go with the deck of cards poker game kind of analogy and you can have a great hand and be so lucky and not have worked it well and then you lost it and then you've lost everything and you lost all the luck that you got or you get a really bad hand but you bluff your way out of it and you work at it and then you are the one who won the game so i do think it's definitely a combination and your mom was right so you and your mom come back so this is what happens in the brain of 17 year old who's trying to think what they want to do when they grow up adults are like what are you good at I like math, I like physics, I also really like to draw. And they're like, perfect, you can be an architect. Which, in retrospect, is the silliest advice I've ever got. But it's the one I followed. And it's Lebanon, right? What do your parents and everyone around them want? They want you to be an engineer. Doctor. Right. Lawyer. Architect. Maybe journalist. Maybe. No, yeah. if, if you have, like, hippie parents. Some of them. You can be a journalist. That's it. So when I said architect, everyone just nodded. They were like, yeah, of course. Architect. Great, wonderful, fantastic. And so that's what I did. I went into architecture school. As we all know, you're not an architect. I am not. I'm assuming you hated it. No, that's not true. So here's the thing with me. I'm really good at faking competence. And I'm a really good generalist. There are very few topics that I'll be like, I'm not interested in learning about this. So you can put me in anything. Architecture school, become a lawyer, neuroscientist for all I care. I'm still going to be interested. So I was actually really good at it. And I love the topic. And actually, I think that if I hadn't sort of gone into the digital career, I would have become an urban planner. How long is the whole thing? Seven years? Seven. It took me eight. I was like a real adult by the time I finished, supposedly. Well, you were 24? I was 25. You can't do math, can you? No, but you said you were 17 plus seven. But it took me eight. But then it took you eight. So you're 25. I forgot, <laughs> I forgot the one year. So before I turned 25, I think I was 23 at the time. I was in Canada for my cousin's wedding and it was my birthday on the way back. And my boyfriend of the time was with me and we were on the plane flying back from Montreal to Paris and then Paris to Beirut. And I kid you not, I think I cried the almost seven hours that it takes to get from Montreal to Paris because I had turned 23. I've always been used to being like top of my class, first one to do things, the youngest to do something because I entered school a year young and so that sort of followed me and this time I was 23 everyone I knew had already like graduated they started working they were being productive and I was still 
doing this architecture thing. And I promised to myself that I would take the next job I got, whatever it was. Because at the time, by the last few years of this architecture degree, you only had to be in uni two afternoons a week for actual projects. And then the rest of the time was technically planned for you to start working in, a, in an architecture office or practice. And I used that time to find my first job. That's a heck of a plane ride then. Oh God, I think my boyfriend wanted to kill himself. And so you got back here. So this is a funny story. It was the summer. So my birthday is end of May. So it was the summer. I didn't have uni at all. And someone told me that one of the beach resorts was recruiting a kind of an event coordinator. I'm like, sure, I can event coordinate, whatever. I mean, I just wanted to sort of see what working looked like and felt like and to explore. And so I wrote my CV. Every time I write a CV, which is so far every 10 years, I Google it. I'm like, so what's like the latest and greatest of how you write a CV? And at the time, read an article that said that a good idea was to make a CV that was off format. So like it wasn't an A4 so that the HR manager or whatever couldn't put it in their drawer, like it wouldn't fit so that it would stay in their face and they would have to either throw it or contact you. I designed a really massive 30 by 30 centimeters CV aimed at this event organizing thing. So it was like colorful and cheery. And then a friend of mine who worked at this company called, at the time it was called Amphipole, And she's like, we have this opening for digital librarian, whatever. Do you want to come? I'm like, sure. What does that even mean? I'll tell you what it means. Part of the company was a digital agency and the other part was a online book distribution company. Disclaimer, yeah. we used to work together. Yes, we used to be part of the same group. And so those two companies were sister companies in the sense that all of the tech and web related stuff was provided by the agency for the book distribution company. And so my first job was to supposedly read books. I didn't read them. I'll tell you what I did. I'm so ashamed. And then review them in English. Every month I had to produce a newsletter that had around 100 or 120 titles. The team that took care of the French one had three people on it who were like publishers, which means they could scan through a book and have an opinion in five minutes, right? And I was on my own. And so obviously I cheated. I'm trilingual and I had to write the review in English and I knew that plagiarism was bad so I would google reviews in other languages and um, well I didn't translate translate but obviously I didn't get an opinion of the book so instead I would be like here's what the crowd thinks okay it's like curation of no critiques. because I didn't really reference them I'm telling I mean, you're I'm walking on murky waters right here no because it's called paraphrasing even in academia come on you can't have only unique ideas Listen, all the time I used to They won't take away my degree if I say this. I used to paraphrase. We all do that. Yeah. You know what I used to do when I couldn't find the information? I used to go on the French Wikipedia, translate it to English so they could never find the source so they didn't even know it was paraphrasing. I did the same thing. I mean, it was fun, but it was boring as fuck. Sorry. No, we can, can swear. You can blurp that. Blurp no, we can that. swear. Okay. So it's boring as fuck. And then, I, and then obviously the CEO of the company could see that, that I, like, I wasn't being challenged by it. And then he's like, hmm, you know, this girl... Seems to want more. What was your interaction with him before? I mean, it was a tiny company. So he interviewed me and he was kind of my direct manager. And so I did the book review thing for a few months. And then he's like, okay, let's give you another challenge. He started making me do shit I didn't know how to do. He's like, oh, write a business plan for this project. And I didn't even know what business plan meant. So I'd be like, sure. And I'd go online and Google it. I would take a stab. I mean, I think the thing that I keep from that time is like you can always try 
It doesn't mean that I could compete with someone who's done this 3,000 times, but it means that I could do a good enough job. I would go and Google business plan and write one. And it was average for sure. But then I'd go and show it to him at the end of the day or the end of the week or whatever. And he'd be like, okay, well, here's how you could have done this better. This, this, this and that. And I would learn. Then like sort of started the mentoring phase where he realized that I was up for most challenges. And I think actually the first time I took on a project fully, it was a time when no one was there to help the team. So it wasn't really my job yet. I wasn't a project manager. I wasn't responsible for the development side of the agency. But we had a really tight deadline. And our designer is francophone or anglophone, but certainly they didn't speak Arabic. And the project was for an event that was happening in Beirut, which was Beirut World Book Capital. And so it was an events and content website. And the content was Arabic. The content and the site. And the people working on it, at least the designer was not. Right. He didn't speak Arabic. Okay. So our designer couldn't help us switch it. And then the person who was in charge of the development team had some other commitment that they had to be at. And so this was crunch time. It was three days till delivery. And I sort of was like, okay, well, I can use Photoshop. So maybe I can help. And so I did the inversion of the design. I sat with the teams. I don't think we slept that weekend. And I distributed the work. I essentially planned the thing. And we actually miraculously managed to deliver on time. The sense I'm getting from your trajectory from when you're a kid, you're someone who says yes to everything, figures it out later. I don't know if you've read Shonda Rhimes's book, The I Year haven't. of Yes. Well, you should read it. It's basically the year where she says yes to everything. <laughs> and... Whether it be talking at events, this or that, or any work-related stuff, she would just say yes to everything. And that really flipped her life around. But I feel like that's something that's innate within you. My joke about myself is I've never met a challenge I didn't want to rise to. I don't know where it comes from. It's also me choosing a career that was not related to my area of expertise, which meant that I accepted by default that I didn't know. But I do agree. I mean, it's funny. Like, till now... People would be like, hey, you want to work on this video project? Do you want to come teach? you want to this? you want to that? And I always say yes. And then two days before the thing, I'm thinking to myself, like, what is wrong with you? That you don't know how to, like, say no to these things. But yes, definitely till now, everything I've done has been challenge myself, fail or succeed, try to learn from it, and then keep moving. For sure. So the first time I really felt like I could do more than do this on my own, that I could turn this into a framework for others started with that moment when we had this crazy crunch time. And after that, I became a project manager inside Keyword, like officially. So I had to take on clients. Then I got sort of the sales and customer facing side of the exercise. And then eventually I built sort of my own methodology and approach to these projects from meeting the customer to developing the sales pitch, to selling it to them, to following up to delivery, to post sales. And then after that, I was promoted to lead all of the project managers. Right. A little bit later, I was promoted to lead the project managers and the developers. And was that the first time you were managing people? Yeah, so I have a really funny story from the first time I was officially managing people. The first year when I got promoted to, to being responsible for the project managers, which in our company were also responsible for key accounts and sales. Not only sort of, yes, you have to lead this team and get them to do their work, but I also had sales targets. And by September of that year, I had achieved my sales targets. So I was like, woo, I got this. And so I worked for the next three months, but it was all extra, quote unquote, compared to my performance targets. And so I walked into my performance evaluation meeting and I was like gloating. 
I was like, I'm going to get the best review of my life. And I walked in and my boss slash mentor didn't give me a single compliment. And instead, he spent the next like two hours telling me how bad a manager I was. So yes, I mean, I had tears in my eyes for all of those two hours. I think I cried for two days after that. And then I put myself together and said, there must be something you have to learn from what he said. Right? New yes, challenge. it's unfair. But I was challenged again to learn something. I know, actually, that the point he was trying to make, which I make now whenever I promote someone who used to be a star performer, which is to say your entire reward system was based on how good you were at getting something done. But when you become a manager, everything that made you a really amazing star performer needs to stop existing in the sense that you can't uphold people to the same bar as your own. You can't criticize them because now you're responsible for them. So when they were your colleagues, you could say, this person is really shit. But when you become their manager, you have a responsibility to make them better. And your reward system is drastically different. You go from almost daily rewards to having to wait much longer, much longer cycles because your rewards are no longer finishing tasks on a daily basis. They become helping someone overcome something, helping the team grow, building a process. And what I learned was the ability to really create high performance teams was possibly the most valuable thing I could learn. And that became my obsession. And that was a big moment for me in terms of management. Do you remember pits and peaks during that journey? I'm sure there were times where I failed. I'm sure there were times where I was brilliant. I don't remember any of those. I just remember the outcome. I remember watching as the company turned into a center of excellence, watching as people grew. And the thing with the way people grow is it's not linear at all. Suppose you have someone and you have to teach them, let's say, a personal skill set. And even if you, can, you have that conversation every day with them or every week, you're not going to see progress. And then one day... One day they're going to wake up and bam, they're going to have learned their thing. And you're going to see an instantaneous change, but it's instantaneous six months later. So the only thing I remember is like those tiny victories. Any specific story, a specific person? There's this developer. I'm not going to name him, but I'm sure he knows who he is. When he came in, he had a lot to learn technically, but he did that beautifully. Like he's an avid learner, but he also had like a really shit character. In the sense that on the one hand, he was lovable quote-unquote because he was a nice guy he was generous he has values but he had a very hard time controlling his temper he reflected on what is fair and what isn't in I'm mean, say immature ways it was impossible for him to manage conflict in a constructive way I remember this one time we during one of his performance reviews where we ended up screaming at each other and I'm not a screamer I had to show him that if if you want to be angry and violent I can meet you I'm not here for that. I'm here to help you learn something. And I'll learn with you, but you're going to have to do it together. And I'm as strong as you are. So don't try to get me on that one. We ended up shouting at each other for like 40 minutes. It was intense. I have all these memories of these conversations with him. And you know, when I left the company, he came up to me and he said, look, there's something really important I have to tell you. You have to know this. Not only would I not be the engineer that I am today without you, I wouldn't be the person that I am today without you. I mean, this guy, I would tell him, oh, there's this book about this topic, which I told 30 other people, and he would buy it the next week. He would have read it. He'd come back. He'd be like, oh, I see why you implemented this new thing in the company. You took it from this book and that book and this scientist. And that's like, for me, one of my favorite growth stories, because also I had a top performer in front of me. Because in the beginning, he didn't used to share 
with new people. Like he didn't used to teach them or help them grow. And by the end, forget what I think, his reviews from his subordinates or people that was on it, were on his team were that the person they had learned the most from was him. But does he remind you of someone? Reminds me of myself. Of course. Top performer, super smart, very arrogant, tough character, tough person, very loving, caring, giving at the same time, but just needed someone to show him that to really expand your potential, it has to become more than you. You have to be able to lead a group of people if you want to build something substantial. But do you think if your mentor hadn't, or the CEO hadn't talked to you and said that you are not managing these people well you would have just left him would i eventually have learned the lesson maybe maybe five years later maybe 10 years later but I it just know. sped up the process i'm super grateful for my mentor because he helped me grow at such an amazing speed he was so diligent about giving me feedback sharing his own story listening to me understanding me and that was so generous of him i think we are called who run the world who and the i world. think You would scold me if I don't ask you this question. Sure. You're a woman. That I am. In Lebanon, in Beirut, working. It's not good to assume, but I'm going to assume at the beginning of your career, being a woman didn't really matter. Honestly, as you said, for the first few years, I didn't feel like there was a difference. I even remember writing a letter to my mentor slash CEO, thanking him for his gender blindness. I mean, obviously, there's always the snarky remark, the client who comments on what you're wearing, which they would never do if you're a man. But at least from the internal mechanics of my company and my ability to grow and get more responsibilities and so on, my gender was never an issue. I came later in the game. We met after. But how many women were there when you first started? On the whole, there were probably the same amount of people from both genders but it was clearly distributed where the tech people were men and the publishing people were women as the company grew we became more aware also to include people of both genders but also minority and diversity within the teams i feel like generally the, co the company honestly was super friendly to women we gave women bonuses when they returned from maternity leave Just to say, like, please stay, we love you, you know, we'll be flexible, but we don't want to lose you. Obviously, we, I'm not sure we got everything perfectly. I mean, I worked with you for, like, what, almost two years, and I never felt different from my male colleagues. Yeah, I mean, especially I worked very closely to a male colleague, and we were part of the team, and I never once felt that he was given better treatment than I was, or I or was more given... opportunity. Exactly, yeah. on the contrary, and I think that was pretty felt, at least at the lower to mid-level Look, I think Side. the CEO honestly was a humanist. And so that was apparent in the culture. Now, you can't change everyone everywhere. And there's always local culture that comes into play. And so I did feel some level of gender discrimination. That was really later on, only in the top layers. Out of the, I think there were 10 people on the executive committee, there were only two women. And so by default, we were the minority. And we weren't sufficient in number to really express ourselves. And so there was a boys club. And am I saying this to say that my senior executive colleagues were sexist? No, I'm not saying that. I would never describe them as that and they would never describe themselves as that. Were there incidents where I felt like they were being sexist towards me? Yes. God bless them. They were all really great guys, but they just didn't realize it. Obviously, it becomes hard to bring it up because you become that girl who's always like annoying or someone used one of the words that we used to describe strong women like she's aggressive or she's emotional or she's this you pick it up and you're like if I was a guy you wouldn't be saying this and so you become this woman who's always annoying the shit out of them 
It's a double-edged sword, right? Totally. It's on one side, you want to educate them because they're doing it from a place of ignorance or not knowing. Yeah, just naivete. Naivete. Yeah. And on the other hand, it's that so much comes with the word feminist or mm -hmm. fighting for women's rights that you're stereotyped in a way. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it ends up being that when you have these reactions to the words that are being used to describe you or another woman, then the men are always wary because then they're like, oh my God, she's... She's one of those. She's listening to every yeah. word I say. I can't say anything wrong. She's going to attack me. If they were convinced that women are inferior beings, they wouldn't care as much. They wouldn't be so scared because they would be like, yeah, fuck you. I think you're inferior. They weren't. They are nice people. I think that's what was nice and kind of unique for us, a tech company also, considering what was in the news, that we were very fair. It's, you know, unconscious biases. There's always the question of how do you fix it? Because if you start implementing all these crazy policies or guidelines about what you're, you're allowed to say, what you aren't, it becomes a policed environment and it breaks the ability to collaborate and, and build together. There was always the question of like, what degree of this do I want to engage in? But I tried to always be vocal and I think I became more and more vocal the more and more women I had on my team because I felt responsible for them. I remember a conversation that we had. Which one? I want to say it was maybe a year within starting. I was talking about how I felt like I wasn't given a chance to lead on a project or to take ownership of things. Right. And you told me if you don't speak up and you don't ask for what you want, no one's going to guess that you want that, especially if you're in a team with other people who are more vocal than you, who talk louder than you. You need to be able to talk loud, especially, you said, as a woman, mm -hmm. you need to speak even louder. It was saying, like, listen up, like you have a male colleague, if he's anything like the average of males... He's going to aim for things that he doesn't know how to do that you would have wanted to get as well. But because he ha he's going to be louder about it because he ha is more self-confident, he's going to get it. And so you need to compensate for that differential by being even louder yourself to try to match up. And I would have given that advice to anyone if I had felt like they were on the shyer side or the more self-judging yeah. side. It doesn't matter if you were a guy or a girl. I would have said the same thing. But definitely there's a difference in that women are always more self-judging. At least the women I had on my team. I don't want to generalize. But the data kind of agrees with that and I, my personal experience also. You did mention that you got a bit of pushback from your peers. Let me say this in their defense. I was possibly the most aggressively ambitious person in the company at their level in the sense that most of the executive team were people that knew each other since they were kids so it was a group of friends but in their defense if there was another one like me maybe they wouldn't have chosen me to pick on maybe it's not just because I'm a woman but also because I was the only one actively developing my career whereas they were all at the top from the early beginning and they stayed at the top right so they didn't need to be as aggressive as I was they didn't need to be as political as I was they didn't need to do all these things and so in their defense maybe they also resented me because I was different than them because I wasn't one of the friends because I was so aggressive I also went to do an executive MBA like I'm really very deliberate about my career let's put it that way and the executive MBA kind of we've had this discussion before kind of changed The way you looked at things. It changed the way I looked at things because it gave me what they call 50,000 feet thinking. Which maybe I had on some issues, but now I had on the company as a whole. And PG-13, but my joke is that an executive MBA is to executives what porn is to adolescents. 
in the sense that it shows you a certain vision of what running a company well looks like, which obviously is never real, will never happen. But it gives you this idea that you could do things so much better than everybody else. And then obviously you get disappointed because that's never going to be the reality. But so it also made me a lot more vocal about my criticism, mostly because now I had words for it. And I'm not saying I was right all the time. And so combine that, so me saying, oh, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, with me also being super focused on developing my own career and put me with people who have been like friends for a long time. They're much older than me. They're all men, uh, mostly. And obviously you're going to get... A clash at some point. A clash. Point. Obviously we're going to end up being on different sides of the debate it's a very unique situation but also had some of the elements of the generalized this is what quote-unquote discrimination looks like in the sense that i was called too aggressive for wanting a promotion or i was called too emotional for being an empathic manager so there were these words that were no longer specific to me that i couldn't ignore and so you left not because of that no i didn't leave because of that i left because there, i'd been there for nine years and i left because there was no additional space for me in that company where i could really benefit it from everything i just learned my role was going to be the same pretty much for a long while i could project that you build all the teams they yes, performed well that's the other one i didn't feel bad about leaving because having spent so much of my own effort on building teams They were so good at doing what I taught them to do or what they were meant to do that they really didn't need me. And the funny story is when I left, I didn't need to hand over anything because I'd never worked on anything on my own. Like there was always collaboration in my system and there was always another person who could do part of what I was doing so that when I left, the system was in place to replace me. It's a very important question. Okay. Was your best day at work the day I joined? <laughs> No. What? I don't even remember when you joined. I mean, I remember vaguely when you joined. Uh, my best day, I can't, it's going to sound fucked up, but my best day at work was the day I left. Not because I left. Let's unpack that. Let's unpack that. There's something about leaving or, or a break or a milestone that pushes people to say things they didn't think they needed. It's like when someone dies and you say, oh, I wish I'd known there were all these things I wanted to say to them. And But when you leave a company, you, it's kind of like you die, quote unquote. And so people have the courage to now come up and say like, here's how I really felt about you. I was terrified. I was terrified that people would feel like I had walked away on them. And instead, I got this outpouring of recognition, of love, of support, really mirrored what I had hoped that I had been doing. They organized You know, because you were there. Um, a surprise lunch. We kind of botched the surprise element of it, but... I mean, I only figured it out the last three minutes. That was my best day because it was the day where the sum of everything I had done for the last nine years was in front of my eyes. Well, I would like to thank you, first of all, for taking this podcast journey with me <laughs> and for saying yes when I asked you. It's been a hell of a ride so far. I can't wait to continue on and we'll be checking in on you as you go along with your well, career. I'll tell you what, Rayo. What? To tell you this about your podcast. So the story is Rhea came up to me yes. as she was leaving the company. She's like, hey, we've always talked about this. You've always refused to write about it while I was employed there. Okay, would you mind like doing this now? And I said yes for more than one reason. And one of them is because I really hope, and I'm saying this so that everyone who listens to us pressures you that you're going to create your own podcast company and I'm going to invest in it and you're going to make me rich. Well, I'm on my way there. <laughs> I've started, so hopefully. So everyone, send Inshallah. Rhea support messages. Thank you. <laughs>
Well, for my first podcast, I'm very happy that it's with you. Same here. And it'll be a cool way to kind of record us along the way. Because I hope to do this for a long, long time. Oh, me too. I hope it's like another five years of this. Minimum. <laughs> Minimum. Take us out. Okay. This has been me and my producer, Rhea. We're both obsessed about understanding what female leadership is like, how organizations promote it or don't, what's the science behind it, can we bring data points, and mostly we're interested in interacting with inspiring female leaders and having them be role models for everybody else so that we can have this conversation with thousands of people 20 years from now. Thank you for not singing. Done. Wait, I have no, to sing. no, 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 you can't. You can't. <laughs> Please, you promised you I could sing. Fine. Just because it's your episode, I'll let you sing one line. One line of one song. Disrespect us, no, they won't. <laughs> so that was my conversation with Marilyn. I really hope you guys enjoyed it. For more from Who Run the World, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Anrami, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, I personally listen to them on Overcast. It's a great app. Stay tuned to more episodes. We have so much more inspiring and beautiful stories coming your way. For the latest updates and news, please check out our website, whorunthewordpodcast.com, or follow us on Facebook, Who Run the World Podcast. Marilyn Zahoud, you can follow her on Instagram at Permanent Hunger. Me, Raya Shadid, and you can follow me at Raisin, R-H-E-Y-Z-I-N, Permanent Hunger, P-E-R-M-A-N-E-N-T-H-U-N-G-E-R. So thank you for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.